0: Lord, that we would be able to uh, learn from the passage tonight. And Father, I pray that you'd bless this Bible study. And not just uh, tonight, but as we study the book of Exodus. I pray you'd help our church to grow from it, Lord. That you'd let this one tonight Bible study be something that would help the people to even grow further and to mature further, to be established further. Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach with your power and your boldness. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Alright, well we're there in Exodus chapter number 1. And if you remember, uh, a few weeks back, we uh, were preaching through the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. I don't, you know, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't on Sunday nights with us as we preached through Genesis. But uh, Exodus really just... Begins where Genesis left off. And if you remember, in the book of Genesis, we ended the book of Genesis, well, we started the book of Genesis with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we went through the Noahic flood, and we went through the Tower of Babel, and then we started dealing with Abraham. And Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob. And then remember, we spent weeks going through the life of Joseph, and what a wonderful uh, story that was, and all the challenges and, and, and practical things we learned there. And the children of Israel, which was a family, uh, you know, and and it's funny because somebody was asking me about this uh, recently, but it's actually part of the text tonight. The children of Israel were a family. Jacob had twelve sons, and those twelve sons had a wife and, and children and, and they were a family and this family came out of Canaan into Egypt to be rescued from the famine and, and you remember the story that Joseph was sold into bondage and, and Joseph was put in prison he, he, was, he was he was sold as a slave he was lied about he was put in prison, and then God brought him out of the prison, into Pharaoh's house, became the second most powerful man on earth at that time. And God used that. And that's really where we take off. And and what I want you to notice, if you look at verse 1, God emphasizes this family, the children of Israel, as a family. Now these are the names, notice what it says, of the children of Israel. Which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. And he's emphasizing them as a family. He gives us the name of all the sons Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. This is a family, 70 people. You might be able to look at your family and and count 70 people in your family. He says, 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Verse 6 tells us, and Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. So we're fast forwarding. We're establishing the fact that the family of Israel, the children of Israel, came into Egypt. But after they'd been there for a while, Joseph dies. All his brothers die. That entire generation dies. Look at verse seven. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. I want to uh, just give you three real quick points tonight. I don't want to uh, take too long tonight. I understand you were in church last night, uh, but but three quick points that we can learn from this passage. Point number one is this, you gotta understand this, the coming of affliction. The coming of affliction. The Bible tells us that the children of Israel came into Egypt as a family, 70 souls. But in verse 7, we're told that they were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now here's what you gotta understand these people were fulfilling God's will for their life. I don't want to take too much time, but let me show it to you quickly. Go back to Genesis, right before the book of Exodus. Go to Genesis chapter number 12. Look at verse number 1. Genesis chapter number 12 and verse 1. We actually kind of did this a couple weeks ago on Sunday mornings when we were preaching uh, about Abraham. But I want to show it to you again. Genesis chapter number 12. If you look at verse number 1, the Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land, and I will show thee, and I will make... Notice what he says. There's a promise that God made to Abraham. And this is uh, Jacob's grandfather. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee. And make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And here we find the, the very popular. What's known as uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Where God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham. Look at verse number 4. So Abraham departed. As the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abraham took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they gathered, and the souls that had gone in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And uh, uh, go with me real quickly. Let's go to. Uh, let's see where I want to take you. Go, go to uh, chapter seventeen chapter number 17, Genesis 17, and I could show you a lot of different passages, but I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, show you all of them, there's so many passages we can show you but if you look at chapter 17, the Bible says and when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect, I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly and Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations, neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy Thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in the generation for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Uh, go, Go to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, remember the story we preached a couple weeks ago when Abraham uh, was going to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac? And in Genesis 22, uh, look down at verse number, uh, let's see, verse 17. God says, and in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. Notice what he, said. he says, I'm going to make your seed as the stars of heaven. And as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate in his, uh, of his enemies. Go back to Exodus chapter 1. I want to show you this, that God had told Abraham multiple times, over and over. He said, I'm going to make of your seed a great nation. He said, he said look up to the stars in heaven. If you ever go out camping, and you get out of the city, and you ever look up in heaven and saw, wow, look at all those stars. Said to Abraham, as the number of the stars are in heaven, that's how many uh, uh, descendants I'm going to give you. He said, Look at the sand of the sea. You, you know, you ever gone to like a beach or something, you saw the sand there. And he said, As many grains of sand as you see, that's how big I'm going to make it. But here's what you understand Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And we know that Abraham and Ishmael, but not, not through Sarah. And uh, Isaac had Jacob and Ishmael. And, and Jacob had 12 sons. And up to Jacob, Jacob was the biggest family that they had there. And it was only 12 sons. And when Jacob's 12 sons had children, they numbered 70. Which, yeah, that's a big family, but that's not really... multitude. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's not really numbering the stars of heaven. And really in Egypt is when God fulfills His promise in verse 7, where He says, And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. And if we were to look at the nation of Israel as an individual, we would say of this nation, of this people, that they are now finally, after going through 50 In the book of Genesis, they're uh, uh, getting to the place where they are coming into God's will. You understand what I'm saying? That was God's will for them, to become a nation, to become fruitful, to multiply. And in verse 7, we would say, King over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. So they said, the Pharaoh says, uh, these people are becoming uh, strong. There, there's more of them than us. And he says we got to deal wisely with them because uh, you know if, they're, if, if a war starts, they might join up with our enemies and fight against them. Now here's the funny thing. The, the, the wisdom of the world is so dumb. Because Pharaoh says we got to deal wisely with them because the, our enemies might win them over. But it's like, well, why don't you just treat them the same way you're afraid the enemies are going to treat them? Well, how would the enemies win them over? By befriending them? Why don't you just befriend them? You know what I'm talking about? But, but the world thinks this way. They say, oh, we got to take care of them. Because they're going to turn against us. Look at verse 11. Therefore, therefore is, talk, is telling us because of verse 10. He says, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Pithom and Ramses. I want to explain to you that there is a coming affliction. We would say, God, the children of Israel are finally, not just a family, but a nation like you promised, like you said they were. They're being fruitful and they'll multiply. And in verse 7 he tells us, they, they're fruitful, they multiply, they become great. And in verse 8 we begin to read, that as soon as they get in God's will, what happens? Affliction. And you think, why does that happen? Why does God allow the coming of affliction? here's what you got to understand, okay? if we were to personalize the children of Israel, they're in God's will. They're doing good. See, we often think affliction comes because of sin. Now... That's true. Sometimes affliction does come because of sin. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We understand that. Sometimes we sin and we reap the rewards of our sin and, and there's affliction and there's tribulation and there's persecution because of our sin. But I want you to understand that sometimes you're doing nothing wrong and affliction comes. And you say, well, why does God allow that? Here's what you to understand. To take us from good to great is why God allows affliction. You say, what are you talking about? Well, here's what you're saying. The children of Israel were becoming a great nation. Good. But God says, you know what? That's not good enough. And He says, I want to take these people who are good, and I want to make them better. And He says, well, how are you going to accomplish that, God? Are you going to bless them? You can maybe do that. Are you going to uh, maybe allow them to, to, uh, uh, to, to be given uh, liberties? Are you going to do nice things for them? And God says, no, to take them from good to great, I'm going to send affliction. You say, well, why is that? Look at verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Do you see that? See, the, the, what God's trying to accomplish with the children of Israel is this. He wants them to be a nation. He wants them to grow. All throughout Genesis, we find him saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you. Uh, with blessings, I will bless you. And with cursings, I will, curse you know. He, he says all these things. He's like, I'm going to make a great nation, he said, as the stars of heaven, as the sandals. They have a huge population. And when they finally start doing it, instead of you, we, you and I would think, God encouraged them. God helped them. But God says, no, I'll send affliction. And you and Because in our minds, affliction is going to slow them down. Affliction is going to stop them. Affliction is going to to make them maybe become less. But the opposite happens. God says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Isn't that amazing? See, there's a principle in the Bible that the more you get afflicted, the more you become what God wants you to be. And and God sends affliction to send us from good so great and you and I think that doesn't make any sense God but remember we talked about this last chapter of Acts his thoughts are higher than our thoughts his ways are better than our ways we don't understand them but that's how it works the Bible says the more they afflicted them the more they multiplied look at verse 13 and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor that word rigor means inflexibility it means strict it means severe he "He made them serve with rigor who, who would, you know, if someone said to you, hey, listen, live for God and you'll get to live with rigor. Does that sound like something fun? verse 14, does this sound fun? And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Now, that doesn't sound like much fun, but here's what you got to understand, okay? This is how God works. I'm, I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm not trying to string you along. If you're going to serve God, there is a coming conflict. Uh, 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 good night. What did I say? Uh, affliction. If you, you say, even if I'm doing right, especially if you're doing right. Even if I'm walking in God's will, especially if you're walking in God's will, there is a coming affliction. Let me give you some examples. Go with me to Job. Job chapter number 23. Job chapter number 23. Remember the story of Job? Job's one of my favorite Bible characters in the Bible. Remember Job? Job, what was Job doing wrong that he deserved what happened to him? If you read the book of Job, you know that he didn't do anything wrong. The Bible says he was perfect. The Bible says he, I mean, he was perfect as far as a man is concerned. Obviously, we were, you know, he's not God. But he was living for God. He was doing right. In fact, that's what most of the book of Job is about. You know, 30 some odd chapters going back and forth. You know, his friends accusing him of sin. And he's saying, look, I'm not perfect, but I wasn't in sin. And Job, you know, the man who was rich, the man who had multiple children, the man who had everything you and I would want, lost everything, lost his finances, lost his business, lost his family, lost his own health. And and the the man, you know, you, you talk about affliction coming on someone's life. Job. And I want you to see what Job said, Job 23, look at verse number 10, Job 23, 10, look at what Job says, Job says, but he knoweth the way that I take, talking about God, and look what he says, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold, do you see that? See Job says, this is what Job said. he identified what God was doing in his life, and he said, I set it in fire, and you uh, boil it, and, and that's how they purify it, they remove the impurities by, by putting it in, in the fire there and, and the idea that Job was saying is God is putting me through the fire to make me better, to make me stronger to make me pure, and he says when he's done with his affliction, I'll be better, I'll come out as gold see the children of Israel were good but God was trying to make them better they were growing but God wanted more growth, and, and you and I would say, God you want more growth, give God, you want more growth? Give him more money. God, you want more growth? Give him more blessing. But God said, no, I want more growth. I'll give him affliction. And for every Christian, you say, but I'm right with God. I know God's trying to make you better. There's a coming affliction. There's a coming affliction. You want another example? Go with me to Acts chapter number 1. I know we just spent the last however many weeks in Acts, but I just love it so much I want to go back to it. Acts chapter number 1. Look at a very familiar verse. Acts chapter number 1. Look at verse number 8. Very familiar verse. The, the Great Commission, found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 1, look at verse 8. Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Very well-known passage. Now here's, here's the interesting thing. In Acts one eight, God tells the church in Jerusalem... That they are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem was a the city they lived in. Judea would be what we would consider like the state they lived in. Samaria was a uh, neighboring state. And the uttermost parts of the earth is in the entire earth. Now here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing about the King James Bible. Acts 1.8, God tells them to go into the uttermost parts of the earth. For the next seven chapters, they do a great work for God in Jerusalem. But they never left Jerusalem. Go to Acts 8 1. Acts chapter number 8, look at verse 1. Acts chapter number 8, verse 1. Acts 1 8, God says, Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Acts 8 1, look what happens. The Bible says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Did you, did you catch that? Acts 1-8, God says, go everywhere. They don't go. Acts 8-1, God forces them to go through what? Persecution. Through what? Affliction. But see, the last seven chapters of Acts, they're a good church. They're doing great things. They have the day of Pentecost, Peter and and James and John, and they're doing great work. They're seeing many miracles happen. They're doing all sorts of wonderful things. But see, God was trying to make them from good to great. God didn't just want them in Jerusalem. He wanted them in the outermost parts of the earth. And He said, if I'm going to make them come to that next level, the way I'm going to do it is not through blessing, but through affliction. There's a coming affliction. He said, but they were good. I know. He's trying to make them better. And in your life, you know, don't get confused if you say... "Ah." Why am I being afflicted by God? I'm serving God. I'm finally in God's will. Why is He afflicting me? He's afflicting you because He's trying to make you better. Let me show you again. Go to John, chapter 15. John 15 explains this process to us. The Lord Jesus Christ explained it to us. John, chapter number 15. Look at verse 1. John, chapter number 15. Look at verse 1. very famous passage in the book of John. John chapter number 15, verse 1, the Bible says, I am the true vine. That's what Jesus, that's Jesus Christ, by the way. Jesus Christ said, I am the true vine. And my Father is the husbandman. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. I want you to notice what he's saying. You know, I think sometimes we read this and we think, oh yeah, 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 uh, he's going to cut the branches that are no good. But that's not what he's saying necessarily. I mean, he does say that. He says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. We understand that. That makes sense to us. But what he he say? The last part of verse 2. And every branch that beareth fruit. That's a good branch. That branch is bearing fruit. That's a soul winning branch. That's a in God's will, branch. Notice he says, "And every branch that bears fruit, He purgeth it." Why does it? What, is, what does the word "purge" mean? The word "purge" means to cleanse. It means to purify. It means to get rid of. We would use the word today, the word, because the idea there is of a plant. We would use the word pruning. You know what it, what it is to prune? You know, you you uh, my, you know. When I think of pruning, I think of like uh, my in laws. They have these rose bushes. And they plant these rose bushes, they grow these beautiful bushes. But, you know, at a certain time in the season, they have to go through and prune that rose bush. And what they're doing is they're cutting off uh, unwanted parts of that, of, of that branch. And, 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 you know, it doesn't make sense. But they're doing it to make it grow nicer. And you think, why are you cutting stuff off? Why are you cutting branches off the rose bush to make it prettier? But here's the thing, when you cut off the waste, when you cut off the deadness, when you cut off what's just in the way, he says, I I cut it back so it grows more. And that's what he's talking about. He says, uh, and every branch that beareth fruit, that's a good branch. It says, he purgeth it. He cuts it back. He gets rid of the waste that it may bring forth more fruit. Do you see that? See, affliction comes to cleanse. Affliction comes to purge. That's what you know. That's exactly what Pastor Anderson was preaching about last night. You say, "I'm in God's will." Why does it feel like every time I come to church, or why does it feel like every time I get up, someone's trying to cut me, or someone's trying to get rid of something? Some, you know, I'm in some. Sort There's a coming affliction. Why? Because that affliction, that purging, makes you better. I said number one, there's a coming affliction. That was the longest point. These these next two should go easy. Number two, there's confidence in affliction. There's confidence in affliction. Go back to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, look at verse number 15. Exodus chapter number 1, look at verse number 15. We said number one, there's a coming affliction... When God's trying to take you from good to great, He afflicts, He purges, He persecutes. By the way, every great revival that we, you know, that we know of in history happened because of persecution. You say, like, when will America have a great revival when persecution comes? You, you, know, well, you know, today, here's the funny thing. Today we have the freedom to knock on doors, except for one apartment complex down the street. I'll tell you about it later. But, you know, today we have the freedom to knock on doors and go winning and go everywhere you want and preach the gospel. Christians, you know, you're uninhibited. You can go anywhere. But here's the funny thing is, the average Christian doesn't go. But when persecution comes, for some I don't understand it, but for some reason, that's when people start preaching the gospel. That's when people start getting saved. You say, when, when will America turn back to God? Maybe when persecution comes, Christians will get serious about living for God, and they'll start preaching the gospel. But anyway, I said number one, uh, the coming affliction. Number two, the confidence in affliction. Look at verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, "When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, and if it be a son, then ye shall kill him; but if it be a daughter, then he shall live." Now, I, I don't want you to miss some of this. Okay, you need to understand the context of the story. Verse 15 says, "And the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, by the way, this is the most powerful man on earth right now. Uh, you know, not right now, good night. But in that story, and the most powerful man on earth says to." not just the midwives, but notice what it says, to the Hebrew midwives. These midwives are Jews. They're Hebrew. Now here's what you're to understand. Just wrap yourself around the story, okay? The most powerful man on earth says, there's too many of you, Hebrews. So he goes to the Hebrew women and he says, when you, when the Hebrews give birth, if it's a male, kill them. If it's a female, keep, keep him. And the idea there was, if anyone's going to fight against them, it's going to be the men. You know, we can overpower the women. Was there, I don't like that. Hey, that's a Bible. I didn't, make, you know, I didn't say that. But, um, he says to these Hebrew women, to do something, and obviously, is it right to kill a child? Obviously, it's wrong. Obviously, that's totally, it goes against God. I wish somebody, you know, I, I wish people in America would figure that out. Uh, it's wrong to kill children. It's wrong to abort children. It's wrong to take birth control pills that abort children. You know, let I me mean? just make that's in, That's in all over the news right now in politics. But it, it's wrong, it's murder. And he tells them to do this. Look at verse 16. I want you to notice this. And he said. When you do the office of midwife to the Hebrews and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him; if it be a daughter, then you shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives, look what it says, feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Let me tell you something. Affliction comes; it does. It's on its way. If it hasn't came, it's coming. But in the affliction, there is a confidence that you can have, and these. He said, do something, and they didn't do it. It's that the guy who hates Hebrews, and says, I've got too many Hebrews, says to the midwives, who are Hebrews, this guy could have them killed at any moment. And he's being kind to them. In the time of great stress, in the time of great persecution, in the time of great affliction, he asks them to do something that's wrong. By the way, it would have been very easy for them to kill the children, and find favor with Pharaoh. I, you you and I would be tempted. To say, well, Pharaoh doesn't like Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew. But if I do what he says, he'll like me. It would have been very easy for them to be tempted to do that. But the verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God. And did not as the king of Egypt commanded them. But saved the men children alive. Go, go, uh, Real quickly, go with me to uh, Acts chapter number 5. Acts chapter number 5. Let me show you something. Acts chapter number 5. Acts chapter number 5. And look at verse number uh, 27. Acts 5.27. The apostle Peter had been arrested. Acts 5.27. The apostle Peter and John had been arrested. And if you read verse 27, it says, And when they had brought them, Talking about Peter and John. They set them before the council, and the high priest asked him, saying, This is what the high priest said to them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man blood upon us. Upon us, He said, Look, we already told you to stop preaching this, and you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Verse 29, look at what Peter said. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, Look what they said. We ought to obey God. It is always right to obey God rather than men. It is always right. You say, even if if, if if they made it illegal to have church, you say, are, are we not having church anymore? No, we have to obey God. You know, we are having church. We have to obey God rather than men. You know, I was preaching about this on, on Sunday night make something clear. Somebody uh, brought this up to me and I, I want to make sure you understand it. The Bible says, you know, I was preaching on the role of a husband. The Bible says that a wife should submit to her husband and she needs to do what her husband says. But let me tell you something. That authority ends when he goes past what God says. you understand what I'm saying? If, you're, if your husband says, I'm uh, uh, converting to being a Mormon and you're going to come be a Mormon with me, wife. At that point, you don't have to submit to him. You say, why? Because you ought to obey God rather than men. Do you understand that? It's not, you know, well, we're, you know we're supposed to submit to the police officer. the authority. Yeah, but if they ask you to do something that's a sin, it's okay to disobey. If they say, stop in here, it's okay to go back. Why? Because we ought to obey God rather than men. Do you understand that? And these midwives say, okay, Pharaoh. But they fear God. And they did what God told them. And there's a confidence there. You say, even in affliction, there's a confidence there. Even when, when you don't understand what's going to happen, there's a confidence there. Even when you, you know, these women could have lost their lives, but they said, we have confidence, even in the affliction, that God ought to be obeyed, not men. Even if it's the most powerful man on earth at that time. The President of the United States makes a law that says, you know, you know let, me, let me just tell you something. They already have a law in Canada, and there will come a law one day in the United States of America, as sure as I'm standing here, there will come a time when it will be illegal in the United States of America to preach against the queers. You say, are we going to stop doing it? No, we ought to obey God rather than men. There's not, you know, there, in Canada, there are certain passages of Scripture that you're not allowed to read publicly. Because they, because they, because they talk about, you know, sodomy being an abomination before God. And let me tell you something, we ought to try to to live right and do right and be the best citizens we can, but whenever it comes between obeying God and obeying uh, man or man's laws or whatever, we ought to always obey God rather than man. And you can have that confidence to know that you're always doing right when you're following God's word. Even if people say, well, you're being disobedient, you're being rebellious, it doesn't matter. If If it's God's will, it's God's word, you're right. There's a confidence there. There's a confidence. We can have confidence. You remember the story, I won't have you turn there, but you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When they were, uh, you know, the, they, they were being told that they had to uh, worship the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had made? And I love that story because when they bring them to King Nebuchadnezzar, he threatens them and he says, he says I'm going to give you one last try. I'm going to have the music play again and you better get on your knees and bow down to that idol or I'm going to have you thrown into the fire furnace. Now look, he already, he played the music and they didn't bow. And he brings them and he says, I'm giving you one last chance. I'm going to throw you that fiery furnace if you don't bow. And I love this story because they, they pretty much said to him, they said, uh, don't worry about playing the music. I'll just tell you what we're going to do right now. We're not bowing. The most powerful man on earth. In fact, let's just go there. Go to Daniel chapter number... Uh, what the, uh, Daniel chapter 3. Go to Daniel 3. It's such a beautiful story. Daniel chapter number 3. Uh, towards the end of your, of your Bible there. Ezekiel. And then you've got the book of Daniel. you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter number 3, and look at verse number uh, 16, Daniel chapter number 3, and verse 16, I, I love this story, because they're so just... Being disobedient, verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, keep in mind, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on earth. And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, I, I love this. They said, we are not careful to answer thee in this man. I love that. You say, what does that mean? They say, we don't need time to think about it we don't need to consult with our lawyer we're not we're not going to mince our words here we're not careful to answer thee in this matter look at verse 17 if it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hands, O king. Verse 18. This is my favorite part. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You know what they just said? They said, God can deliver us from the fire furnace if He wants to, but even if He doesn't want to, even if He doesn't deliver us, even if we burn and we tithe a horrible tent, we still won't serve you. We still won't value you. Why? Because they had a confidence that they were obeying God. Do you understand that? See, you and I, we live our life, well, I'll tie. as long as God doesn't, you takes care of my family. I'm just, well, what if He doesn't? What if He never takes care? What if you don't pay your bills? What if you do lose your house? What if, you know, the... Our, You understand that? Our attitude ought not be, well, God, okay, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, and I'm not going to work on Sundays, as long as you take care of me financially, but if I, you know, if I'm not able to get my uh, daily dose of Starbucks, you know, if I have to miss that, then I'm just going to have to work on Wednesday nights. That, that, you understand that attitude has no confidence? The attitude they had was, God, we're going to serve God, and He will deliver us, but even if He doesn't, we're still going to serve God. Even if He doesn't, we're still going to obey God rather than man. That's the kind of attitude you and I need to have. When we'll say we'll serve God whether it turns out well or not. Whether He brings us out or not. Whether He takes care of us or not. It's still right to serve God. That's what our attitude ought to be. And that's where your confidence comes. Go, go back to Exodus 1, look at verse 18. Exodus 1. You know, we have this idea, God, I will serve you as long as you, my children come, uh, serve, you know, come out right. Well, what if your children don't come out right? We will come to church. I'm coming to church so God can heal my marriage. Well, what if God doesn't heal your marriage? What if your business fails? What if your children live for the world? What if what if God doesn't do whatever you're saying to do? They said whether he does it or not, we will serve God. That's the attitude. That's the confidence. Look at verse 18. Not only can we be assured that there is a coming affliction, we can be assured that there is a confidence in the affliction. Number three, here's the last point. There is a comfort from the affliction there is a comfort from the affliction look at verse 18 and the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive so he's upset saying look I told you to kill the children why aren't you killing them he said why are you saving them look at verse uh, 19 and the midwives said unto Pharaoh because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women I love this verse I, I find it kind of comical and the midwives said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere, you know, that, that word there means before, and, and they're delivered before the midwives come into them. You know, obviously they're stretching the truth there a little bit. You know, they say, well, well, here's the thing, Pharaoh. When we show up, the baby's already born, so we don't have a chance to kill them. I mean, these women, man, these Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Look at verse 20. Therefore, because these midwives took a stand, had confidence in God. Look what it says. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. See, let me tell you something. You say, Are you going to be on Pharaoh's bad side. I'd rather be on Pharaoh's bad side and on God's good side. Than be on the world's good side and on God's bad side. Do you understand that? Amen. Therefore, God, dwelt well, uh, God uh, dealt well with the midwives. Look at verse 21. And it came to pass... Because the midwives fear God that He, the He there is referring back to God, that God made them houses. Un- understand this, okay? These are women. They're not living in the United States of America. We know through history that women have not had the rights that men have. in America. And even in Israel, they weren't allowed. They had to make an exception to allow a woman to own property. In, in Israel, in the Old Testament. These women are in Egypt. Number one, their first mistake. <laughs> I'm joking. But you know, they're women. Number two, they're Hebrews. And number three, they're trying to get rid of Hebrews. And throughout this entire affliction, God makes it so that these women are given houses and property. And God deals well with them. Why? Here's why. In the midst of the affliction, if you have confidence in God, you will be comforted through God. God will comfort you through the, if you obey God. But see, here's the thing, they didn't know that they were going to get that. In verse 17, they didn't know that God was going to give them houses. They just, the Bible just said they feared God. For all they knew, they were going to lose their life. But they say whether we lose our lives or not, we will serve God. I love I love what Esther says. She said, If I perish, I perish. She says, If I die, I die, but I will do what God tells me to do. It says and it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born, you shall cast it to the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. There's not only a confidence in the affliction, there's a comfort in the affliction. Let me show you one more verse we're done tonight. Go back to Job twenty three. Job twenty three right before the book of Psalms, Job 23. Look at verse 10. Job 23 and look at verse 10. I said, number one, there's a coming affliction. Number two, there's a confidence in the affliction. Number three, there's a comfort through the affliction. I want you to understand what the comfort is. Job was going through probably the most... Affliction that the Bible records anybody went through other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Job said this. We focused on this part when we were here a little bit ago. When he said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. But I don't think that's what comforted Job. I think what comforted Job was the first part of the verse where he says, But he, talking about God, knoweth the way that I take. See, the comfort in the affliction is this. Even in the midst of the storm, do you understand that? God is still on His throne. God is still in control. And even when the most powerful man on earth is making your life bad, He says, Job says, He knows the way that I take. He says, God knows where I'm at. God sees me see God knows where you're at God knows where he's sending you God knows see everything in our life, if, we if we would understand this our Christian life would be so much easier if we understand that everything that happens to you is filtered through God nothing catches God by surprise it's not like life, and there's a reason why He's letting you do it, and the reason is probably this. He's trying to take you from good to great. I don't know about you, but I want to be great. I I mean, it's good to be good, but I'd like, you know, I'm only 26 years old. I don't want to end my life, and this is the most spiritual I've ever been. I don't want to end my life, and this is the most We all want that, but we don't want to go through the trials and the affliction that Paul went through. We all want to be like Job, but we don't want to go through the trials and affliction that Job went through. you understand what I'm saying? Why was Job so great? Because of the affliction. Why was Paul so great? Because of the affliction. Because God brings the affliction to make you better. There's a song, it's not in our songbook. There, there's a song written by an independent funeral Baptist. And they... It's called Rejoice in the Lord. And I like it because it really goes with what we're preaching about tonight. I just want to read some of these words to you. It says, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying His servant and molding a man. Give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness He giveth a song. The second stanza says, I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior. Instead, I bowed to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came, and tears fled away. Now I can see testing comes from above. God strengthens His children and purges in love. My Father knows best, and I trust in His care. Through purging more fruit, I will bear. The chorus says, "Oh, rejoice in the Lord, He makes no mistake. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Let me tell you something. The affliction is coming. I don't know what affliction is going to come to you. I don't know what affliction is going to come to me. But I can assure you this. If you're trying to live for God, the Bible says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The affliction is coming. It's not, do you think it's coming? Oh no, it's coming. There's a confidence in it. There's a comfort in it that God knows where you're at. Let's bow our heads and I'm over to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you both so much. Thank you for our church. And Lord, I pray you'd help all of us to go from good to great. And Father, I pray you'd bless the Bible study tonight. Thank you for the wonderful service we had last night, the great preaching. And Lord, I pray you'd help all of us to be ready for the coming affliction. And to understand you're just trying to purge us, you're just trying to cleanse us, that we may bring forth more much fruit. We love you, Father, in, our, in your precious name. I pray. Amen.